Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, everybody. Hour number two of your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, December 17th is just moments away. But before we get into that, we need to thank the following unions once again for sponsoring this program. First up, it's the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace. No, not Aerosmith workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, and the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. A giant thank you to those unions for jumping on board and sponsoring this program. And of course, today's Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you in part by our dear friends, great friends, at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Hour number two, let's go. It is Tuesday, December 17th, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is the Ben Jarofsky Show. In this hour of the program, one man and one man only. It's the return of the president of the Chicago Principals Association, the one, the only, Mr. Troy LaRavier. And now your host, oh, please believe me, the one and the only, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Troy LaRavier is in the studio and love talking politics with Troy. Already jumped into the conversation. We're going to have so much more to talk about. Just popped into my head. But I put this in in, in the back of Troy's mind. Uh, This has been on my mind for a while. And that is, is there room in politics today and in the Democratic Party in particular for black leftists? I'm just just think about that for a moment while Dennis does an update. Black, I'm not talking about mainstream black Democratic officials. I'm not talking about uh, supporters of Joe Biden type. I'm talking about like a black person who's like Bernie Sanders. Just that's been on my mind since I did a story about Harold Washington. I've been thinking about him and he was a, it's out, a great out. story, man. It's but, a great story. Thank you. Um, I didn't say it to get that compliment, but I'll take the compliment. Uh, but I don't po- look at my Facebook feed. I don't post much, but that went up, man. As soon as I read it, man. Well, that's that on my up. mind. That's on my mind. So you think about it, and D, you got an update for me? Absolutely, I do. Here, just a recap more than an update. It's been a decent Ben Jarofsky show thus far. If you're downloading right now, listening to hour number two, and you haven't listened to hour number one, boy, you should check it out. We've been talking that damn dirty Chicago corruption and the latest uh, on Flesnergate. <laughs> That's right, a brand new gate. New week, new gate. New gates. <laughs> Nothing but gates in the city of Chicago. Stacey Davis gates. Hey, that's that? a gate. <laughs> yeah. To get all the details on Flesner Gate, head over to the Ben Jarofsky Show Facebook page and check out the Sun-Times article that we posted from Fran the Woe Man Spielman and Tommy Shuba. And while you're there, post your thoughts. Tell us what's on your mind. Uh, also, we were talking recreational marijuana and the possible pot shortage in Illinois come January. Don't delete your weed dealer from your phone yet, people. To get all the details on that story, find the Ben Jarofsky Show on Twitter. Once again, Tom Shuba. Boy, he uh, had his breakfast today. He's really on fire. So go check that out on Twitter, at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y the letter J show. And we've been talking all things local politics with our Chicago reader colleague, Maya Duke Masava. Maya also brought us her homemade cookies. Mm-hmm. Damn, they're good. Mm-hmm. Our friends listening live on YouTube then wondered, hey, are those marijuana cookies? <laughs> the I answer's not, no. The answer's no. I can't handle marijuana and ask questions yeah, at the same I do, time. I do not want to work with that uh, on this show today. But that is when our YouTube live stream chat room started riffing and giving us their best impression of Ben Jarofsky high on a Maya Duke <laughs> of a weed cookie. <laughs> so I got the I got some of them here. We'll go ahead and read them. That's a good time here. Uh, shout out to Stephen. Stephen, what's happening here? Stephen puts here. This is our first. Uh, oh man. So Troy, let's talk about man. Man, what? <laughs> That's pretty good. That's actually how it would go down. Oh, here's uh, Ben talking to Maya on a weed cookie. Man, Maya, that is a groovy scarf, man. <laughs> Dragon Slayer weighed in. Dragon Slayer. I might say that happening? anyway without the marijuana cookie. <laughs> yeah, you actually would. Dragon Slayer weighed in. Here's uh, Ben Drosky high on a weed cookie. Man, like tiffs, man. <laughs> 
Have you ever thought about how it's it's just not that uh, man? It's just uh, I don't pay for it, but you do too, man. <laughs> That's good stuff, man. Let's see here. Let's see. <laughs> Real good. Steven weighed in. Oh, hey, man. I just realized that Dennis has been saying Aerosmith workers, man. That's pretty funny. Reminds me of the 70s, which I'm not old enough to remember, man. <laughs> good times. Keep them coming, everybody. Uh, ben Jarofsky High Impressions today on the YouTube live stream uh, chat. That's pretty funny. If you've ever wanted to join the live stream chat, you should. It's a good time. Fantastic stuff. Find us at Benny J Show. You can always listen on the live stream chat if you're downloading. Just search for the Chicago Sun-Times on YouTube. YouTube. Uh, anyway, I uh, I am old enough. I just corrected one dude. I, I am old enough to remember the seventies. People say I'm lodged in the seventies. Oh, just, and then there's one more I got to mention here. Uh, uh, man, Doctor D, man, you know what they call him back home? Weed lightning. <laughs> Instead of white lightning. White lightning. Very good. Anyway, I remember the seventies, and uh, very I remember the seventies well. So people say I'm lodged in the seventies. I think it's all been all downhill uh, since the seventies. Troy, before I get to the black leftist question, in your humble opinion uh do you have a favorite decade you've you've basically lived through the 80s the 90s uh the o's and the teens i lived through the 70s too i was born in 1970 so i remember the 70s fairly well from five on okay all right <laughs> uh in the music i remember quite well too the 70s music i guess folks favorite decade is always the one they kind of came of age in, you know and so for me it was the 80s um mj prince um, the the rise of the Bulls, Harold Washington, uh, my time at Dunbar Vocational High School, my two years in the Navy, all of that happened in the 1980s. Um, unfortunately, Reagan was also, Reagan and Bush dominated, Bush won, dominated the 1980s. So they were the, the dark cloud <laughs> hovering above everything else. As a else. kid in the 80s, were you even paying attention? Oh, hell yeah. I mean, you were political? As someone in the black community, so, like there was this thing in the black community like, this dude's bad for us. Like It was just said everywhere. So as a kid, you're hearing, you're hearing this. You're hearing your grandparents talk. You're hearing your, your mother. or like, like, this dude is not good for us. It, 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 his presidency is not going to work out quite well. Those weren't the worst, but that was the general sense that you got as a kid mm -hmm. listening to the conversations of adults. Um, so, yeah. I had a pretty decent sense that I had. I didn't really know the extent of it. I didn't get the the backwardness and the the the, the of like the foreign policy mm -hmm. and the uh, the interventionist wars. And I didn't. I didn't have the political sophistication to understand just how underhanded and corrupt a lot of his foreign intervention policies were. The Iran. I remember hearing Iran Contra, but it wasn't until like the late. 90s that I even understood what it was a decade a decade or two after it was over with um but yeah that the 80s were my favorite man and then you know my favorite artist of all time is Prince and that was of course when he dominated um actually my first record I ever bought in my life was Little Red Corvette when did that come out 83 it seems like it's been it out forever I it's funny that you mentioned Reagan and uh, the black community's attitude toward Reagan, because in some in some ways, nothing symbolizes as much in my lifetime anyway, uh, the difference between just the general consensus uh, that's put out for Americans uh, to um, support about a president or a policy or uh, an administration or anything really, and then the the black perspective as Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan is revered by the Republican Party. Ronald Reagan, they named an airport after Ronald Reagan in Washington. Ronald mm -hmm. Reagan is considered, and you, 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 Barack Obama, when he wanted to prove that he was yeah, a bipartisan <laughs> guy who could appeal to Republicans, he venerated. Uh, Ronald Reagan, but I remember in the '80s, you couldn't find any black person that could say, say not something nice. Uh, I shouldn't say any. Right. Overwhelming majority realized that the policies of Ronald Reagan's were really hitting hard on poor black communities throughout right. city city of Chicago, throughout the country. Mm -hmm. And there's a split between the white view of Ronald Reagan and the black view of Ronald Reagan. Well, I mean, people have a way of. I don't know, deluding themselves or justifying or excusing away 
I mean, Trump's a perfect example of people's ability to excuse away the faults and sort of deny the truth about someone. And if you could do that about a Trump, if 30% of the population still vigorously supports that mess, <laughs> like you can really understand how it could be done with Reagan. I mean, Reagan obviously used a lot of dog whistle politics, um, uh, racist dog whistle politics to drum up Southern support for his presidential candidacy, talking about states' rights, right? That states' rights is a dog whistle word for you can do whatever the hell you want to black people in your state, right? That's what that was. And he, you know, raised the specter of states' rights in order to get Southern support. So if you're willing to do that to get support from that, you know, area of the country, then you're willing, you're sort of expressing a support for the politics behind it. Mm -hmm. And of course, when he came in, you know, that's the politics he engaged in. By the way, another thing from the 80s, uh, different from Reagan, I have to, this has been on my mind lately. Uh, I, my, I was been thinking about the movie uh, Do the Right Thing, which came out in 1989 at tail end. You were probably in the Navy. I was in the Navy when yeah. I, was, I actually saw it in Norfolk, Virginia. I left my ship uh, and went over to the Traveled, uh, hopped on a bus and went to the mall to see Do the Right Thing by myself. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, and well, the reason it's on my mind is that Danny Ayo just died uh -huh. at age 86. And he's the actor who played Sal, who ran the pizza parlor. Right. And I did a great job. I just wrote about this for the Reader's uh, uh, Newsletter. Uh, I He was nominated for an Oscar. But he lost to Denzel mm -hmm. Washington for a movie called Glory. And I, to this day, as much as I love Denzel Washington, feel that Danny Aiello deserved the Oscar in 1989 for his uh, depiction of Sal. Uh, and uh, what a, just that movie, just like the, the rage that Sal had in him, the rage that the, the people who, uh, Radio Raheem. Right, right, right. Every, just, just everybody's Mookie, angry. Mookie, yeah. Radio Raheem, Sal, man. It, it was, and remember, uh, um, Ayel wasn't the only one to get robbed from Do the Right Thing that year. The so, big robbery was right, Spike was Lee. Spike Lee. He, yes. didn't get, uh, he, he didn't get nominated for Best Director. Remember Kim Basinger? At the award ceremony, when she was presenting the award for Best <laughs> director stood up and protested the omission of Spike Lee right there at the ceremony. I was like, whoa. I became a Kim Basinger fan after that. <laughs> no, you're right. Spike Lee, uh, and they, you know, we're in a tangent with a tangent, Troy, but like, why did they, in your humble opinion, uh, not, he didn't get, not, he got, I think it may have gotten nominated for screenplay. Don't quote me on that, people. You can look it up. I just can't remember. But he definitely got admitted for director and for best picture. And I think the Driving Miss Daisy was best picture of the year. Because yeah. that's why Spike was so mad last year when uh, <laughs> Green Book got it. But I'm like... Historically, do the right thing is perhaps the most significant movie of the eighties. It, it just like what an omission that it didn't even get nominated, let alone win. Yeah. So, so what do you think's going on? I mean, there's a big conversation around um, the issue of um, what's the word? Uh, the, the word they put before it is bias, but they call it a certain kind of bias. What is it? Um, the sort of unconscious bias. They have another word for it, but this issue of unconscious bias, it doesn't just work in policing, right? Unconscious bias is a force in this country. I'll give you a quick example. In the 1970s, they had this thing where they couldn't get women in orchestras. Mm -hmm. They would try out and fail. They would not get chosen. And so they began to attempt to have women do these blind auditions where the people who were judging could not see the um, person who was playing, the violin, the piano, whatever they were auditioning to be. And after a few rounds of this, they found out that women were still not being chosen, even with these blind auditions, until someone noticed a someone, uh, an experimenter was in the room with them and noticed the sound of a clicking heel when the person walked across the stage. Notice the sound of a clicking heel. And so after that, they asked all candidates to take off their shoes before going on stage and auditioning behind the curtain. 
and the number of women who began to get accepted into that orchestra skyrocketed. And so just a sound associated with women. (laughs) Now remember, these people are highly trained. The people who are listening are highly trained musicians at the height of their abilities, of their accomplishments, and yet even with all of their training, the unconscious bias they have against women still impacted their perception of what it was that they heard, just with a sound associated with them. And so I say all of that to say, because I think this is much more closely associated with the film industry in terms of the people at the academy who are picking these movies, mm-hmm. that when they're watching Do the Right Thing, they're not being impacted by a sound associated with black people. They're sitting there watching black art. Mm-hmm. And being Americans, obviously have the unconscious bias toward that art that Americans, all of us, not just white Americans, all of us are conditioned to have with things associated with black people. Mm-hmm. So that's what I that's what I see. I see unconscious bias in um, the omission of do the right thing for so many different uh, uh, Academy e- Awards that year. I don't even know if it's unconscious because we're having this conversation. I'm thinking that Driving Miss Daisy was victorious. Now, I loved Driving Miss Daisy, but driving I loved it for different reasons. Uh, Driving Miss Daisy was a movie that was very reassuring to white people like myself that there is hope in our country, uh, that blacks and whites can get along, uh, that we uh, are not destined to be at each other's throats for the rest of existence. Uh, And it was great acting. It was a great script. Uh, Morgan Freeman and Jessica Tandy were brilliant together. So it really, in my humble opinion, deserved accolades do the right thing does not give white people any hope it didn't do do white do the right thing do the white thing that's a freudian slip uh and do the right thing it ends with a riot and sal's pizza parlor burning down uh and i don't know what hope you can get out of that uh troy i don't know what message there is of white people being good it's kind of a bleak if hope is the standard, then you have to apply it across years for any genre of film. And so I would imagine that there are hundreds of, excuse me, dozens of films that have one best picture despite the fact that they don't have hope. You know what I'm saying? They're probably some of the most, you know, um, the ones that get the most accolades, those that don't necessarily end with hope. It's only when that lack of hope is associated <laughs> If you and I've seen you in general as a white person, that the unconscious yeah. bias and all of the race-based thoughts, whether they're conscious or, and some of it I'm sure is not unconscious. There's conscious and unconscious. Mm-hmm. I'm sure some of it's not unconscious, but I like to at least be deferential and and, and lean toward the unconscious. Um, anyway, all of that's at play. You know, the, the the only time hope comes in the, the lack of hope comes into play is when it's an excuse. For, for bias, because in every other year, if there's a film, like it's never you, that, that it's almost like uh, what I told you last time with um, states' rights, <laughs> right? States, the, the war was about slavery, right? It, the Civil War was about slavery. Mm-hmm. And when you don't want to admit that it was about slavery, you talk about states' rights, yeah. right? Um, despite the fact that you weren't for states, the states' rights of New York to harbor escaped runaways. You weren't for states' rights then. You're only for it when it gives you what you want, yeah. which is slavery. And so I think it's bias and all these other things that we come up with are kind of our ways of softening. And it's understandable. That's a human trait of trying to soften something that's so hard, that grates against the type of people we want to be, that tells us we're not exactly who we think we are. And I've gone through that myself many times. Um, and so we come up with these things to tell us what we want to hear or that the thing that's so hard and truthful and that truth that's so hard and grating against us doesn't grate quite as much. What do you mean you've gone through that many times yourself? Um, realizing that you're not the person you think you are, that you want to be. You know, the one thing that has me doing that more than anything is raising a son. 
<laughs> Dude, there's so many times yeah. when I am snapping on my boy. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like, I could be talking to myself. <laughs> like the thing that I'm telling him that he should do, I'm like, I'm not doing this either. Or that he shouldn't do, I'm like, I'm doing the same shit. Yeah. <laughs> right? And sometimes I'll actually stop mid snap and like have a conversation with him. I was like, you know what? I do this too. <laughs> so let us, let's have a sit. Let's talk about how we can both become better people. Um, but you don't, but like typically, and it's only because of that moment where it's like your son mm -hmm. that you're forced to sort of come to terms with who you really are versus the person, the, the public narrative that we all sort of paint of ourselves. And we paint that narrative to ourselves. We can't, cause you can't tell a lie unless you believe it. Well, there's some people who can tell a lie. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say. But most of us, yeah. most of us find it difficult to lie to other people unless we find some way to believe the lie that the, the, to, to, the, that to, to tell ourselves that lie and believe it. Yeah. Um, and so things like that, uh, things even with the, the the discrimination or the the subconscious bias thing, right? There are times in my life when I realized, as a young teacher, I didn't have. I thought I had high expectations for my students until I started raising them and realizing that I didn't because the thing that I'm now demanding of them is not something I demanded of them three years ago. Why? Because I didn't really believe what I thought I believed. Am I making sense You here? mean you didn't believe that the students could do, they could make achievements? I believed it in the sense of, yes, saying it, but then when you start giving them assignments, what are you giving them? And the assignments that you give them speak more about what you believe than what you say. Right? You look at your actions. When, you, when people say, uh, you know, I don't have a prejudice bone in my body, and a group of young black men walk in, and you kind of tense up. What is that? What is that? Black people do it. White people do it. You know, and I, I'm sure I told the story on this show before of the white guy who had the, the black daughter who told his black daughter that people were going to be prejudiced against her. And, you know, he was giving her all of this stuff to do. You know, if a police stops, you do this, you do that. I know it's not right, but some people, when they see your skin color, that's just going to form a certain opinion, opinion of you. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of nights later, he's on the street, the same white guy. He's getting out of the gym. He sees a black guy walking down the street toward a white woman sitting on the bench. And he stops. And he goes, let me, he's supposed to be leaving, but he stops. And he's like, I'm gonna wait here just in case. And then he sees a little black kid following behind the black man. And he sees a little bounce in the skip and the step of this little black kid. And then he said, I couldn't believe what I had just done. This was a father like me, just walking down the street and yet I had just done to him what I told my daughter people were going to do to her. Mm -hmm. I had this thing in me, this bias, this prejudice that I didn't know was there until I was forced to confront it in this situation. Yeah. So that's what I mean. All of us have that. All of, All us, of us tell ourselves we're someone, but then when we look, when we're forced to look at our actual behavior mm -hmm. and what that says about our subconscious beliefs that you know, we don't touch unless we actually examine that behavior. And that behavior is quite different than the person that we tell ourselves we are. Yeah, no, you're absolutely, the notion of a colorblindness or without prejudice is a joke. I don't even know why people say that. Yes, uh, agreed. Other, other than to make themselves, I don't even know why they say it, because no one believes it. Every, we, we all uh, make assumptions about people. We, It's just part of, life mm -hmm. and you do it at an immediate basis so like for instance do you ever walk across the street to avoid people that you think uh may be dangerous to you i want there are times when i want to i never do but there are times when the thought occurs and so it's just as bad right it's it's still showing the same thing that you're getting at that there's a I, i've never met these people mm -hmm. why why is i so why what, am i having this this feeling well what uh uh why don't you walk across the street if you have that feeling? Are you I'm so glad you asked, Ben. Because that is the key to ending racism, right there. When you recognize the feeling that you have 
is a prejudice and an illogical and irrational one, right? Because racism is not prejudice. Racism is when you act on your prejudice. Let me say it again. Racism is not prejudice. Racism is when you act on your prejudice. So, for example, if I'm a cop and I believe that you might have a weapon, young black man, that's prejudice. Mm -hmm. If I stop and frisk you as a result of that belief, that's racism. If I'm a mayor and I don't necessarily believe in the potential of black children, that's that's prejudice. If I shut down 50 of their schools <laughs> as a result of that belief, yeah. that's racism. And so the way that well-meaning people, because you got everyone has prejudice, some are not so well-meaning, some are, but the way that well-meaning people prohibit their prejudice or stop their prejudice from becoming racism, the first thing they need to do is one, recognize it. It's like Alcoholics Anonymous. What's the first step? You have to get up and say, I am. <laughs> no, my name is blank. <laughs> name and is I am and I am an alcoholic. Yes. Right? Yeah. And it's the similar process with racism that I am prejudiced. Mm -hmm. Right? And the second part of if that is because you now know that this thing operates in the back of your mind. You you understand that there'll be moments where it's it's in play and you act you recognize it, you stop and you act differently. Yeah. You respond differently. And so if I'm walking up to a group of men, or even a group of cops, right? Sometimes I have that feeling with cops. Yeah. There's a prejudice there. And I don't even know if you can call that one a prejudice because of all the examples we see, but it's a prejudice, right? Um, that no, I am not going to assume the worst of either this young black man or this group of police officers. I'm going to move forward um, as if, you know, with the best, as if they have the best intentions and treat them as such until they you know, show me differently. I have a couple of thoughts that popped to mind. One has to do with the fact that Miles is in the studio. And uh, I, when I went with Miles, I hope I've told a story on the air with you before, so it's all good. I think with Miles and his dad, we went to a Cubs game and going to a Cubs game with Miles and his dad. <laughs> Remember that, Miles? We were in the bleachers, and they were like, they told us, they came up to us and said, you don't belong here, you belong over. I don't believe in a million years if I wasn't with Miles, that guy would have come, that security guard would have come up to me. Well, he didn't even come up to me. He came up to your dad and said it. We, we don't belong, you don't belong here, you belong over there. And we were at a patio, they have a really feel where it's, Drinking and so, so there's really no reason why he would assume we didn't belong there. I mean, it there, I think it was open to anybody, isn't it? Yeah, you could sit, sit anywhere. I just he directed us over there, and and Miles' dad said, You well, you remember what he said. He goes, Well, that's how they treat, and yes. uh, yes, <laughs> yeah. uh, and yeah. uh, and that was like, Wow, <laughs> okay, but in a million years, but. This is the one, Troy, I, and I, I have a confession to make. I'm going to make a confession. Mr. Liberal, Mr. Liberal right here. Mr. We're all together, okay? Black, white. One day, I was like, <laughs> it's confessional music. Walking, uh, and I was walking back. Yeah, you couldn't hear the great confessional music. I'm a, since we're all confessing here, so... I'm walking, there's an underpass from the lakefront path to, if you're walking along the lakefront on the north side, uh, to, if you walk under the underpass, go under Lakeshore Drive, and then you're on the west side, okay, of the uh, of the park, and you can go on. So it's, it's, it's kind of dark, I'm walking, I go under the underpass, I'm already in the underpass. Have you ever been in an underpass mm -hmm. under Lakeshore Drive? It's a tunnel, and it's got, it's lit light by these floors, the light bulbs, so it's kind of an eerie thing. Coming at me are, I think, three black kids. And I'm walking in a dark tunnel toward them. They're walking toward me. And it's like, do I turn around and run? That's, that's what I thought. And I said, no. Troy would be really upset with me. <laughs> If I, I didn't actually think that lady, I don't even know if I knew Troy when this went uh -huh. down, but it was sort of like, no, 
you know what? I'm just going to walk toward these three guys as they're walking toward me. And it's like my mind's playing tricks mm-hmm. on me, Troy, because it's like suddenly it's getting darker in the tunnel and they're getting bigger as they come toward me, you know? And I'm thinking, you're stupid. They're going to hold you up, blah, blah, blah. And so I'm walking at them and <laughs> I'm right next to them. And one of them goes, oh, hey, Ben. I knew the kid. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, hi, Chris. How you doing today? I didn't tell him. Jesus, I was really scared of you, man. So we, live, we live in a world that programs all of us to have that reaction, that feeling. The sad thing is that we, are also, we also live in a world where the thing that needs to happen to end it all can't happen. Because... The thing that needs to happen is that people need to be able to feel comfortable saying that. What you just said. I need to feel comfortable saying the parts of my life story that correspond to a moment like that that I've had. You need to feel comfortable saying it. But we live in a culture where if you say that, all of the insanes from our side, the left side, come out and attack you. right? And so people don't want to get attacked. And so they can't take step one of ending racism, which to which is to openly admit and come face to face with many of the biases that we hold. Because when you do that, you know, the people who hold biases, I call them the bridge, right? People who, some of the best people in, in terms of a resource to use to end bias against women, bias against black people, bias against anybody, are the people who held the bias, particularly the people who were held conscious bias not just unconscious, conscious, and actually get to a point where they realize that what they did was not right, Mm -hmm. whether it was conscious or unconscious, because it's those people who could serve as a bridge to the people who are still holding on to it, right? They're the people who have that toxic bias, who can say, yeah, you know what? I felt that way too, but let me tell you this other thing in terms of, what they've learned, but when people, so that's the, those people can be bridges, but we could create hundreds of thousands of bridges like that, Mm -hmm. but we can't because we created a culture where people feel so completely uncomfortable coming out and talking about the negative beliefs about women or men or Muslims or Mexicans that they once held. So do you think Barack Obama was making a compelling point when he uh, criticized Democrats for being too, what do you say, woke? I think that was his word. They're too woke. I don't know what he meant um, when he said that. You know, my memory is of, of him criticizing folks that were a little too leftist. Um, but it sounds like you're talking about something different. It just came out. It happened about a month ago or so. Uh, I I interpreted it. What, what uh, Barack Obama was saying, and I'm paraphrasing it. Uh, it was I forget where he made these comments uh, that, that uh, people uh, on the left are too quick to criticize uh, folks for saying things like you were saying. Like yeah, if that's what he meant. Exp- then yes, yeah. If that's what he meant, I mean, I, like the moment where someone screws up, particularly if it's someone who recognizes they screwed up or held a bias or blah, blah, or like that is a moment where we can really unpack. Like, wait, that's happening because of something in our culture. And we all have that thing, not just this person. Let's unpack this. Let's talk about it. Let's help. Let's try and use this one to help those of us on our side understand it better, but also to bring more people over. Mm-hmm. Cause that's the whole point of politics, right? You want to get a majority. You want to bring people over and that person is your bridge. Don't burn the fucking bridge. And that's what we do consistently. We burn the fucking bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, when this show started, remember D I said, I don't know what I'm going to talk about with Troy. Uh, none of this was planned. <laughs> <It> sure wasn't. <laughs> I don't even know how we did. I have a whole list of things, teachers and principals at Southside schools, all these things. I was gonna, and we went on to this tangent, and I really didn't even get a chance to ask you about uh, being a black leftist uh, in the Democratic Party in this day and age. So we'll take a break. We'll come back and uh, talk about that. We'll be right back. Cool. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. 
food, arts and entertainment, weekly concert listings, weekly event listings, the environment, travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader, free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. At Chicago Land Cremation Options, we are committed to listening, educating, and guiding your family through the cremation process. Whether it is time of death or when planning your wishes for the future, Chicago Land Cremation Options can accommodate you at an affordable price and with great dignity. Avoid funeral home costs with direct access to a crematory for a cremation. Chicago Land Cremation Options, just south of O'Hare, five minutes west of Chicago. It's a family-owned business and operated by my good friend, Douglas Klein. Visit it at ChicagolandCremationOptions.com. One more time, Chicago Land Cremation Options.com. Where is the accountability in the system? You cannot have, because of a person's position, one set of rules apply to them and another set of rules apply to everybody else. In another way, you're seeing this play out in the universities where people pay extra to get their kids a special position in universities. Now you have a person because of their position and background who's getting treated in a way that nobody else would ever, sorry about that. Don't get near, I'm doing near my sermon here. Hey, commercial break's over. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Mr. Jarofsky, take us home. All right, Troy LaRavier uh, in the studio. We've been talking, uh, we were supposed to be talking, naughty, naughty me, about politics. We got off into a whole discussion about race relations. I dragged poor Miles uh, into the discussion, reflecting about uh, the time I went with you and your dad, the beloved uh, Cap, one of my best friends, uh, to a Cubs game. And uh, I got, <laughs> we were moved from one section of Wrigley Field to another. So uh, is that generally how it goes at Cubs with games with you? Or what's your experience there? It's, it's really weird with me. Usually when I'm at a Cubs game, I don't usually get those questions. Maybe it's just because of how I present myself. Or maybe they look at me and they can tell that I'm a baseball player. But for like friends of mine who are also of color, usually it happens to them when they go to the game or if they're trying to find me, we're trying to meet up. There's usually some kind of story that happens with like them and like the people who are escorting people to their seats, and it's something that's very common, but it, it hasn't happened to me too much, basically. What about just in general walking down the street? Uh, you're a young black man, uh, grew up in Evanston, go to school here in Chicago right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you get the kind of reactions that Troy and I were talking about? Do people like walk the other way? Anything like that? Absolutely, absolutely. There's, there's 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 times where I'm where I'm walking down the street and I'll see people who who aren't of color obviously, and they'll be a little bit intimidated by me just by looking at just my stature. I mean I'm a college athlete. I'm a little bit bigger than people who don't play sports right now. So usually I'm 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 getting looks or you know there's a little bit of like a hesitation if we're at a stop sign. I've 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 seen people kind of just walk look at me like walk next to them. We're both waiting at the light and they look at me. They're like whoa, what is that? You know, moments like that is kind of just like I, I do get those looks and I do get like a like shook, shook reactions when I see other people who aren't of color. What about people who are of color? No, not really. No, not 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 really. Usually it's like a it's, it's weird. It's like a, it's like a black sense. It's like a mutual understanding. It's like, hey, what's up, man? Hey, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, usually, it's usually not like that with, with like other people, other people of color that I see. It's just like, you know, it's, definitely unless. There's certain places where it is at play. Like if you're in the middle of the hood and people aren't sure about your intentions. Mm. You, know, I haven't, you know what I mean? Yeah. But in yeah. general, when you're just meeting with other, you know, just crossing paths with other black people on the street or in an elevator or whatever the hell, you just don't get the kind of thing that you get. Um, yeah. Now, it, another thing that happens is a lot of times when older black people um, walk by younger black people. It happens in the older black people that there's some kind of, uh, particularly if you know if if you dress like if you if you have a certain look, you know, <laughs> dreads or this or that, yeah. yeah. Like a lot of times, um, and they don't even have to be that much older. I mean, we can talk about like half a generation difference, but if uh, you know there's a thirty year old walking by some twenty or teens, you know, in that thirty year old, there's some tensing up that happens. Yeah. Uh, but but in terms of like so peers, 
it typically doesn't happen like right. that. Right, yeah. right, yeah. Well, I get yeah. it. I, Absolutely. I, I, I have to tell you, this is a whole other conversation for a, a longer deep dive. Let, let me connect it, yeah. though. Let me connect it, though. Because the point is, we have to stop like telling stories like this to confirm that it actually happens, and we have to get to the point. I'm saying not like now, like it's important to do it now, but we have to get to the point where the stories we just said, it's just like everybody just knows. Like, yeah, of course, that's what happens. And it happens because we live in a world that conditions people to feel that way. Yeah. What are we going to do about it? Like, we have to get beyond the storytelling point. That's my point. To, to take it back to the conversation, we have to get to the beyond the, here's another anecdote, and here's another anecdote, and here's another anecdote to, this is America, this is why it's America, and this is what we can do to reduce the prejudice that creates these three million anecdotes per day. All right, and yeah. there's... Yeah. No shortage for anecdotes. You're absolutely correct. Uh, and so, Troy, do you believe that the road uh, toward confronting these issues is integration at the earliest age, wherever you can find it, it be that uh, the public schools or the parks? Or do you think that uh, integration is a pipe dream and the notion that uh, black and white kids black and any kind of kids uh, have to get together uh, will not solve the problem so why even deal with it in a way yes uh, I look at I try to look at it as a scientist I try to look at everything from an evidence-based scientific perspective and so racism is created by a couple of things one there's a story told about a certain people you know the English told a story about the Irish and if you go back and look, it sounds exactly like the stuff white people <laughs> say about us. You know, right. lazy, prone to violence, like the, yeah, yeah. the same stuff. Yeah. So you tell a story, right? You malign the character of a whole group of people in the minds of, you know, what Trump's doing to Mexicans. He's telling a story about them, right? So that's step one. You tell a false story that becomes huge in the popular imagination. That's part one though. Two, you segregate the people who you're telling the story about from the people that you're telling the story to. That's step two. You have to segregate and separate them because if they're not separated, then they will have far too many instances of running into the people that they've been taught to, to believe a certain thing and realizing that it's not true. Like reality will keep hitting up against the prejudice that that they've been taught to have and challenging that prejudice. And so you have to tell the story. Then you have to about you have to tell them stories about each other and you have to separate them. So they'll be more likely to hold on to and maintain. Mm -hmm. And so what integration does is attempt to lessen the prejudice by bringing those groups together to create that that um, cognitive dissonance that happens when the world as it is doesn't conform to the world as you've been taught to believe it is. But what thing it does not do is address the fact that the story continues to be told in the popular imagination and the music and the news, the way crime is reported. That's the thing that has to also get addressed. But I do agree that uh, integration and bringing people in contact with one another more often does a lot to sort of uh, buffer the effects of the story, of the mm -hmm. false story that has been told in this country since the 1500s. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that, Miles? Absolutely. I was thinking to myself just now, like, I genuinely believe, like, Evanston, for a great example, is one of the best places to, like, raise raise a kid. I mean, Looking back on my days in high school, it was like the most the most uh, integrated school I've ever been to, mm -hmm. let alone places I've ever seen in my entire life. You have low income black kids, and you have you know fairly fairly well off wealthy white kids, all in the same school. Not always in the same classes, but in the same school, really like getting to know each other. There's no avoiding each other. There's for the most part you're gonna have a class with someone who's who's up here when it comes to money. You're gonna have a class with someone who's a, a lot less, mm -hmm. and who knows they may become the best of friends and really like that um like the stereotypes and these stigmatisms that like our country has i, I really like genuinely believe that like 
like Evanston Township is like the perfect example of like where like we should start heading right now. In in my in my humble my humble opinion. Yeah, and when I say the story, it's important to make that real too. Like, for example, if a crime is reported in the news, I think the statistic is um, that the news is five times more likely to show a picture of the offender if they're black. And that means all the millions of people that are watching are five times more likely to see a picture of a black person portrayed as a criminal mm. than a white person, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, one of the, there's a new show on that I love. Um, I watch uh, Young Sheldon a lot on CBS. No. And <laughs> Dad's favorite show. Yes, I freaking yes. love that show. Right, Everything. you and, and Cap. So, well, he loves the other one, The Big Bang. Or is that yeah, what's Big, Bang. Bang. Big Bang Theory. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I like Young Sheldon. I love love Young Sheldon. And so, because I'm watching Young Sheldon, I see all these previews of other shows. And there's this one called Bob Hart's Abishola. Bob loves Abishola. Mm-hmm. It's this sort of fifty-ish white guy and a slightly younger uh, Nigerian woman who is a nurse. And he's got a thing for it. Um, and it's a f- show's funny as hell. And I got so into it that I started looking up some stuff, you know, like like some background of the show. Um, and they talk about the fact that so many Nigerian people, there's a lot of Nigerian immigrants in the show, appreciate the show's effort to be very realistic in how it portrays Nigerian people. And then they start quoting, and I can't remember the exact numbers of statistics, but it was some insane statistics like if uh, previously, previously Nigerians in American mass media, and particularly entertainment culture, if they're portrayed as something, it's something like, I don't know, a third to a half of the roles that they have or something like gangsters or some shit like that. Mm. Like, so the people who are watching and consuming this, the brain works the way the brain works, whether it's on the movies, like the brain is taught to create patterns and expectations based on what it experiences. And so the brain's gonna do its job and condition you to feel a certain way about a certain thing based on how that thing is continuously presented to you. And so the people who are watching that, people who are watching the news, watching the, how Nigerians are portrayed, watching how black people are portrayed on the news in terms of criminals, their brains are being conditioned to, to, to predict because we, we're predictive animals. If you look, look, talk to any evolutionary scientist, that's how we work. We have to predict or else we'd have to go through these long ass decision making processes mm-hmm. every time we confront a situation. So our brains do this thing where they sort of create a stereotype. Stereotypes are actually a part of biology um, around things that they see more often the way they see them. Uh, and that stereotype that the way our brains work has been manipulated by the mass media, by the news, by the entertainment industry, and forced first and foremost by uh, the business community. Um, you know, corporate giants, I mean, the, in the beginning, the business community was slaveholders, right? They're the ones who needed to create these negative images of black people to justify what they were doing mm-hmm. to them, right? right? That's how this all started. That's how racism started. The need to justify the enslavement of an entire group of yeah. people. <laughs> um, and it didn't take much justification back in those days. They just worked from a certain assum- set of assumptions that they held very true. Do you get what I'm saying? Like It seems like it's a little more harder these days uh, to justify w- the world that we see around. I'll tell you one thing about integration, though. Uh, listen to, to Miles, you you talk about uh, what you experienced at Evanston. Mm-hmm. The, one aspect of integration is when you force black and white people to come uh, together in their just in a workplace or a school place or a play place or whatever, invariably you are going to force them. Uh, how do I de- how do I say this to open up about the prejudices they have toward each other. I mean, I've, I've heard it from both sides. White people, X, Y, Z. That's just how they are, blah, blah, blah. Black people, X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, so a school like Evanston or a school like Oak Park, they always say, like, if you have a, a from a mixed marriage, you got to go to Evanston or Oak Park because that's the only place that would tolerate 
uh, a kid who's uh, mixed. That's I've heard that one a million times. So part of that is because there's a place for everybody. You know what I mean? Like at a school that large, you can find people that look like you and act like you and talk like you. But mm-hmm. sooner or later, Miles and Troy, you're going to confront somebody. It's Somebody's going to throw something at you and you're going to have to respond. That's just what it means to go to an integrated school. And I'll, I don't know if a lot of people mm-hmm. like that. I don't love that challenge. You know what I mean? Puts, puts people off or what have you. Yeah, I... Uh... I don't. Yeah, I honestly, honestly, I agree. I really, I really believe like whatever, whatever problems someone has with another person, you know, depending on their race, I really do believe, you know, these, you know, the these, you know, what, what you have in your head, you're gonna have to eventually come to light with it. You're gonna have to confront it, whether it's externally or internally. Mm-hmm. At some point, you're really gonna, you're really gonna have to figure out. Well, okay, well, what am I doing? Why do I feel this way towards someone? I don't even know that person. I'm already, I'm already, my mind is already made up about them. I don't, I don't even know them. And there's about 400 other kids just like them that I'm gonna be in a class with, play a sport with, be in a club with, do whatever. So I, I really, I, I agree. I think eventually you have to really come to light with yourself and just understand. Well, you know what? Let me experience this for myself and then make a judgment off of that. But that person or how I feel about certain things doesn't represent an entire community of people. Yeah, I um, uh, went through this myself many times. All right, uh, Troy, before you go, before we close on the show, we have to deal with the one issue I said we we're going to deal with. Right on. Uh, and uh, <laughs> being a black lefty uh, in this day and age, uh, am I unfair when I say that uh, it's more difficult to be uh, a black leftist than uh, to be a white leftist. Uh, that it's easier for Bernie Sanders to espouse the things that he espouses, so articulately, I might add, uh, as opposed to Troy LaRavier espousing the same things, or Stacey Davis Gates, or any black person who's of the leftist persuasion. Uh, easier in the sense that, you know, black folk, it, it, it mirrors it's, it's, it's almost like saying easier to be a white American or a black American because the same basic concepts are still at play black people know for the most part if you're in politics you know the white world and you know the black world you know your experience and you know the larger experience white people typically know the white experience <laughs> but don't know so don't know the black experience don't and, and so it, you be, find yourself having to teach people quite a bit. Uh, you find yourself operating in a larger circle that doesn't understand what's happening in the smaller circles within it. And so you find yourself having to, uh, like I said, bring people up to speed um, and make them care about your issues in a way that's not just, well, if we do this larger thing, it's automatically gonna help this smaller race base. No, it's not. Uh, Listen, pay attention, make an effort. Um, So yeah, in that sense, you know, it almost reminds me of the feeling I had as an educator with Bernie, because Bernie was progressive on everything, except he didn't really understand education. And so going in as an educator, being a Bernie delegate and trying to influence that education platform, um, it, it, it was difficult in the sense that the folks who were running his campaign didn't understand the issues. You know, the, the school privatization, what a charter was, how it worked, how it's undermining public education. They didn't get that. And so, um, it was difficult in a sense of trying to get them to get that, but it was easy in the sense that since I was such, um, me and a couple of other people were such experts, they kind of gave us free reign to create <laughs> the education part of the platform, which we did. Um, and so at least they were open to the fact that they didn't know, and so they just kind of handed it off to us. But in the bigger sense, the campaign kind of suffered from that strategy because they still didn't know. Right. The people in charge still didn't really get it. Mm-hmm. Did it make any sense? Uh, yeah, I'm a little surprised to hear that Bernie's people didn't get the the impact that uh, privatizing public education would have. A little disappointed to hear that. Well, actually. They didn't get the whole privatization <laughs> argument when when they asked Ber- when they asked they asked Bernie in a debate uh, four years ago. Yeah, I don't remember. This. Did Go he ahead. support yeah. public charter schools? And he said yes. He said yes. 
not knowing really what the hell they were asking him. Now he has a different conversation now because ever since that he's woke. <laughs> that that He's debate, yeah. you know, the education community has tried to reach out to him and give him a sense of just how um, toxic that many parts of that um, school management system is. Yeah. But back then, you know, he didn't get it, and his campaign didn't get it either. Well, Bernie, so, yeah, so, so bridging it back to being, so I felt it, you kind of feel that way being a black person as well. Like, that's the thing that the the progressive community sometimes just doesn't get. Um, I think many are getting better at it. Mm -hmm. uh, you certainly see progress. You certainly see people making very deliberate attempts um, to acknowledge what they don't know and to bring voices of people of color into the conversation uh, and to understand. Uh, so, but you know, it, it's, it's still imperfect. Yeah, it is imperfect. And I got to tell you, it's, it's a, uh, I'm watching this democratic primary unfold, fascinated by it on many levels, Troy, uh, there'll be debates coming up Thursday. Well, there, I think there'll be debates. There's a labor issue that may, uh, force the debate. I don't know if you know this, but they're supposed to have it at uh, Loyola Marymount uh, in California, and there's a labor dispute. Uh, and so the debaters, the Democratic candidates, do not want to cross a picket line. I don't know what, if that's been resolved. Mm -hmm. I've been in the bubble all day. Uh, but I've really enjoyed watching this um, uh, on many levels, this primary unfold, because uh, it says so much about the Democrats, our country, et cetera, and so forth in the age of Trump. Uh, but one point that I find very interesting is the the level of support among black americans for joe biden at least in the early polls um even though joe biden's entire career has been supporting policies that have not really worked to the benefit of black americans uh and the more leftist candidates in, in at least in principle are supporting programs that would be more beneficial uh, to black people, to oh, people, lower income black people, let's put it that way, definitely with health care being at the top of the list. Mm -hmm. And and yet the, what's, what's the word? Reluctance? Trepidation that black voters seem to have toward the Bernies of the world. Even in, this is the second go around, the second mm -hmm. bite of the apple for Bernie. Remember, he was going, I learned from what I did. I'm, he's going to appeal. He's still not doing very well in the polls with uh, black voters. So it's just. I thought I read differently. I thought I read in actually the piece you sent me. Uh, I mean, he's not doing as well as I think he should be. Or as well as Joe Biden is. Let's um, but I thought he was doing better than Biden amongst black voters in that poll. Is that right? Yeah. I sit corrected if I, I uh, and I said on the article. Yeah, uh, I thought he was. Maybe, I was all I excited by the article because he was uh, overall. Well, I say I, I sit corrected then. Uh, but uh, Joe Biden, I but it was something like twenty three percent to Biden's twenty or something like that. It black wasn't voters. huge. Yeah, that's what I thought. Well, that's you pretty. Pull this remote. thing up now, yeah. well, yo, live podcasting. Yeah, yeah, I'll pull it up. Stall, Ben, right. stall. Okay, uh, I just want to talk a little bit more about uh, <laughs> Flesnergate. How is that that uh, uh, they let the city corporation council, the top lawyer in the city of Chicago, get away with saying, "I did not know. I made a mistake." <laughs> What an innocent know. mistake. And they go, come on, man. The guy's allowed a mistake. That's why you have erasers on the ends of pencils. By the way, Troy, a lot of people are weighing in on the live stream chat room. They, uh, oh, they thoroughly enjoy your interview. No, Troy Larvick. All right. So it does, it's not black. It's non-white is what it is. Okay. So that's, amongst non-white yeah. voters, mm -hmm. Bernie has 29% and Biden has 26%. Okay. So they don't break it down to who's black in that non-white okay. block. So well, I'm, I stand corrected. Okay. Sit corrected. Uh, I, uh, it, just <laughs> technically. Uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, the point is um, that there's also a lot of, of, of black support for uh, Joe Biden that's been pretty consistent uh, on the polls. I think I don't 30%, 35% in the mm -hmm. crowded race. Uh, more so than, let's say, Kamala Harris got or Cory Booker's getting. Um, but uh, I just this I just keep thinking about this gap between uh, black voters and the most progressive members of the Democratic Party. It just seems as though they're two different communities that don't always communicate with one another. When I have that feeling, I just remember and think back to my time in the Navy, my time after the Navy, 
my time supporting Clinton um, when I wasn't really that active in politics. Like it was just kind of like you saw the news. Like the majority of people were like that. Like I've never, I, I haven't always been as conscious of what's happening political as I am today. Um, so I can't assume when I look at the lack of black support for, um, or the fact that Bernie doesn't have uh, as much black support as I think he should. I, I kind of think back to, you know, where I was, and that's where most people are, particularly mm-hmm. not just black people, most people in general. They're not that engaged in the process. Who's the person that's getting the most play? You see articles about MSNBC and some of the, even MSNBC and some of the major networks sort of blocking Bernie out of the conversation. And so if I'm a person who only sort of tangentially looks at the news every now and then, and I don't even get to see Bernie, you know, because the news stations have decided they're just not going to cover him, mm-hmm. then the numbers make perfect sense. Yeah. Given the participation rate and the level of engagement that most people have in the political process. They make perfect sense. Well, I'll just point this out. You said, uh, well, in the conversation where we began it, you said your favorite uh, decade is the one where you came of age, and that would be the 80s. Yes, sir. And the two most significant uh, black politicians of the 1980s were, in my humble opinion, Mayor Harold Washington of the city of Chicago and the Reverend Jesse Lewis Jackson, who ran for president twice during the 1980s in 1984 and 1988. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was... He stayed at it till the end at each time and forced the Democrats to give him a, uh, a prime spot on the stage to give his two powerful orations at the Democratic Convention. So there mm-hmm. were pivotal moments. And I will tell you this, as an old lefty, the ideological views of Harold Washington and Jesse Lewis Jackson, and then as they espouse in 1980, are basically the forerunners of what Bernie Sanders and the left are saying today. You go back and look at Jesse Jackson's platforms mm-hmm. on health care, almost every issue. He was do, saying it before Bernie Sanders was saying, well, Bernie was saying it at the time because he's old, but he didn't have the national <laughs> platform. I don't want to mean to demean Bernie. like he, uh, And Harold Washington was saying the same thing in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So it just, one of the frustrations I have as an as a old lefty is this disconnect, Troy, between people uh, who really could benefit from Bernie's and Harold's and Jesse Jackson's view of the world and how they vote or don't vote. And that explains to a certain degree why we have Trump as president today. Yep. It's certainly frustrating, understandable, but frustrating. All right. Let's try to end this on a little more positive note. Can you say something positive (laughs) to end this with? Um, I have no idea what to say. <laughs> I, I just learned how to bake a sweet potato pie. I don't know. <laughs> All right, that's positive. Uh, and uh, we'll end with that. That's positive enough. And uh, hey, well, we have a we have a bit of a breaking update here. Shout oh. out to our good buddy Pat Whalen who uh, threw us this uh, over on text. Uh, we'll Pat, have, yeah, we'll have a lot to talk about tomorrow. Because uh, here it's from Tom Shuba. Uh, it says here, I believe this is Twitter. It says here, the City Council Committee on Contracting, Equity, and Oversight just voted to delay recreational weed sales until July. Wow! What? Yes! Yes! Oh, I'll be talking about this all day tomorrow. I've been... They must listen to the Ben Jarofsky show. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Because I've been saying, Troy uh, and Miles, that... um, the thing that most offended me, well, there were so many things about the war on drugs and war on reefer that I lived through, was just the utter hypocrisy. Utter hypocrisy where black people get arrested for something that white people do all the time. And mm-hmm. then white people pretend. And I love white people. Don't get this wrong. I mean, people may think I don't. I love white people. I got nothing against white people, <laughs> all right? But they pretend like marijuana is this thing. Like, this is a terrible thing. And I don't know. And oh, my God. And they're doing it, Troy, okay? I saw them do it, all right? I was there when it was done. And this is this phoniness and this fakeness. And it's just doing me crazy. And then I got to see it in real time. I, Mick Dumkey and I were at the, the courthouse uh, the, on, on the south side where one black kid after another dragged before a judge for possession of reefer. And I'd be seeing white kids smoke it in my backyard in some cases. 
And it's like the phoniness. So here we fast forward. It's finally legal. And who is benefiting from it? All these rich white guys. And I'm sorry, Troy. I just had to say, Mm -hmm. you know what? Uh Uh-uh. Let's make it back to illegal. If you can't even deal with the most basic flaw in this freaking program, if if the end result of you legalizing reefer is that rich white guys are going to get richer, that's not the point. You know what I'm saying? So make it illegal. Go back to Dennis's drug dealer selling it, but nobody gets arrested for it. I always add that caveat. Right. Okay? Uh, so anyway, it's good to see the city of Chicago is going to try to address. I hope that I, th- I assume that's why they're... I mean, I'm assuming so. Yeah, yeah. It's just from Tom Shuba here. It was literally breaking just a few minutes ago. But Tommy if you listen closely, Shuba. you can hear you can hear everyone's drug dealer in Chicago. Yeah, going, hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> Buy me some time. <laughs> everyone's <laughs> marijuana drug dealer. We're not endorsing any illegal drugs on the Ben Jarofsky show. Anyway. All right. Miles Porter, thank you very much. Uh, Troy Laravier, thank you very much. Maya Dukmasova, thank you very much, even though you're not in the studio. Guys, everybody did a great job. And I want to point out, Miles... I'll be here this week, and on Thursday we're going to drop that tape. Oh yeah, uh, we're going to yeah have everybody coming. Joe Colley will be here. We'll be doing our Bulls update uh, as we the year ends. So a lot of lots of good stuff coming ahead for us. And of course, the man, the myth, the legend uh, from the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois. You know what they they don't call him Weed Lightning down in Alton, Illinois. They call him White well, Lightning. They don't call me that either. But. <laughs> Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Take care, everybody. Just Dennis. And remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows and Benny J bonus interviews at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites. And wherever else you download your favorite podcasts, go check out this last weekend's uh, Benny J bonus interviews if you've yet to. Downloaders, you know you can live stream this show. It's true. Tuesdays through Fridays, 1 until 3 p.m. Central Time at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites. And the Chicago Sun-Times YouTube channel. Join the live stream chat. Make fun of Ben like most of the people do on there. It's a great time. We'll see you tomorrow. That's correct.